So to get that perfect barbecue, you use wood. Are you sure it's safe? Whatever. We put the lighter fluid on, strike the match, and... Should we call the fire department? That might be a good idea. edition of the really big barbecue central show the show where we talk about all things important to the world of barbecue and grilling and it's been a while since we've dropped some bonus content into the feed if you're not familiar with what bonus content is that means it's something that's airing outside of the normal 9 to 11 tuesday evening live show as a matter of fact because you're getting this podcast on a Tuesday. If you've never listened to the live show before, why not make a date and do it this evening? Yeah, 9 to 11. BarbecueCentralShow.com. You can also get it on Periscope, on Facebook, YouTube, number of different avenues for you to get the live show. But I will leave that up to you. If not, you can always get it on podcast. But again, bonus content here. And if you are a fan of the show and if you listen to my guests and you listen to my social media feeds, you are often wondering to yourself, there's a reoccurring theme as far as a guest I should get on the show because I'm from Cleveland and this person is from Cleveland and they have a barbecue restaurant in Cleveland. That being, of course, the Iron Chef, Food Network celebrity, cookbook author, James Beard award-winning chef, Emmy award-winning TV host. The list goes on and on, that of course being Michael Simon. And finally, through the magic of Twitter, which you will hear in the following interview, we were able to link up, we were able to put a date together, and we laid it down. It's about 35 minutes or so. It's really good content, and it's a little outside of the norm, and we do talk a lot about barbecue. We talk about the term pitmasters and chef. We learned a lot about his restaurant and the pains that he had to go through in getting it opened up, the training of the staff. We learned a little bit about him and how busy he was as a chef coming up, putting in those 80, 90, 100-hour work weeks at his initial restaurant, which is Lola's, which is now, ironically, located pretty much right next to Mabel's Barbecue on East 4th Street. But the time that he put in there and now having his son, who's 30 or so, reflecting back on the hours he put in and not necessarily seeing as much of his childhood as probably he wanted to, but now being where he is in his station able to make that schedule and spend a little bit more time after the fact. So a number of you have been waiting for this or wondering if this is something that would come to fruition, and it has. I laid this interview down November 6th, which was a week ago. I didn't edit out a lot of content. While it doesn't necessarily sound studio quality, I think the fidelity is actually very good. So without any further ado, I present to you the conversation I had with Michael Simon this past Tuesday at Mabel's Barbecue in Cleveland. All right, so I'm sitting here in Mabel's Barbecue with Michael Simon himself. You know, first thing, let's talk a a little bit about social media because, in essence, this is exactly 
how this interview happens. I've been interacting with you through Twitter for any number of years yeah, now saying, years. hey, I'm this Cleveland guy, you know, let's do an interview, blah, 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 I'm barbecue, you're barbecue. And through another guy in Pittsburgh who just happened to be at your location in the Pittsburgh airport mm-hmm. said, hey, what about your buddy? I'm like, eh, I might like him more than me. All of a sudden, here we are talking in your restaurant. So right. how do you use social media, I guess, both personally and professionally, or because of who you are, are you able to delineate personal social media and business social media? That's a good question. I, you know, I probably um, use social media, I guess, different than a lot of people. I, I use it more personally than I do professionally, but because professionally I'm a chef, it, it, it allows me to answer a lot of questions to a larger audience than I would be able to do just from customers coming into the restaurant. So, you know, I try to use it, especially Twitter. I try to use Twitter. People have a cooking question. If they have a recipe question, if, you know, today someone said, I have a rust spot on my knife, how do I get rid of it? Like, so, you know, I could use social media to reach a pretty large audience in that manner. We use it a little bit to pub the restaurants or maybe a show that I'm doing or something of that nature. But I would say 80% of what I do is just me having a relationship with the people that follow me and, and trying to make cooking and or food stuff a little bit easier for them sprinkled in with some good old-fashioned Cleveland Browns arguments. There is this access now to everybody at every time where you can build a little bit more brand loyalty or personal value because you are interacting with people versus having somebody else run the account. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't think about it too much. I mean, there's been plenty of times since social media started that I've made mistakes, done things that like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And people saying, let us handle your social media account, whether it be, you know, my partners at the restaurant or people that handle some of our PR things. For me, I just feel like if I can't do it myself, then I probably shouldn't have it. It should just be a at that point, it should just be a Mabel's account or a Lola account or a, you know, a B-Spot account or whatever. If I'm going to have an account with my name on the account, then I feel that I should be the person that's answering the questions and doing the posts. Some of that is there's going to be some typos, misspellings, bad punctuation. Human stuff. You know, stuff that just happens to normal people. You know, I'm, I might be in an airport and I'm trying to answer things really quick before I get on a plane. And, you know, those things happen. But to me, that's what makes it a real account. It's not just someone using it purely for PR. So I really don't think of it in the sense of, oh, I'm going to build brand loyalty because I have this Twitter account or Instagram account or whatever. I, I just think of it like, you know, these are people that maybe they follow me. Maybe they come to my restaurants. Maybe they saw me on TV. and But for the most part, they have cooking questions. And if I have the ability to answer them, I'll answer them. What's a travel schedule for you look like, especially when, <laughs> you know, the TV show was ramped up and you have all these properties here in Cleveland, yep. out of state as well. Is a there a typical, typical week for you? I don't think there's a quote unquote typical schedule. It was a little bit more regulated when we were doing the chew, you know, for those seven years, I had to be in New York three days a week, 35 weeks a year, you know? So, I mean, we filmed the show Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, for 35 weeks a year. So, you know, after we were done filming Thursday, typically I'd, you know, I'd come home and do what I needed to do here. But this week, for instance, I got to Cleveland Saturday. I'm here till Wednesday, Thursday this week. I got a Thursday morning. I need to be back and I have to go to New York to do Good Morning America and Thursday night football for Fox. Friday, we have an event at our Atlantic City restaurant. So I'll be in Atlantic City Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, doing the events and getting menu changes done there. 
Then I got to go to Philadelphia for a Food Network appearance uh, the following day. And then we're opening up in Vegas, a Mabel's mid-December, so I'll go to Vegas after that. And then probably be back in Cleveland right after that. I log a lot of miles. <laughs> um, you know, Cleveland is where I was born and raised. It's home to me whether I'm here for three weeks a month, a week a month. It's always what I consider my home. Uh, my family's here. My wife's family's here. Our son lives in Long Island. We're gonna, ready to have our first grandchild. So, you know, I try to spend time with as much time as I can with him. When uh, my granddaughter's born, I'll, I'll try to spend as much time as I can with her. So How do you like that moniker? Granddad. Granddad. I, I You know, I'm super excited. You know, I mean, when, when Kyle, I mean, Kyle's 30 now. So, but when he was growing up, you know, we were working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks in the restaurant. So, you know, I miss more of his childhood than I probably would have liked to. But now, you know, you a little older, a little... I could make my own schedule a little more now than maybe in times past, so I'm, I'm very excited to be a grandfather. The schedule sounds both ex- exhilarating, especially you know if you're a guy like me and you ham and egg are doing the Cleveland yeah. thing day in and day out. You're off to Atlantic City, you're going to go down to Philly, you have the Food Network stuff. Then there's the day-to-day. Is this something that you knew going into it? There's a grind, it's just part and parcel and I got to accept it? Or was there a, a pretty big break in curve for you to realize there was going to be such a demand on you? No, I mean, I, you know, we opened our first restaurant in Cleveland 22 years ago. You know, at the time, Liz and I are like, we'll have one restaurant. And we had one restaurant for 10 years. I mean, that was always the thing. Uh, you know, we put 100 hours a week into that restaurant, but that was our life. We never thought anything more of that. And then all of a sudden, in the early years of Food Network in 98, you know, they started having me on Food Network, and it changed a little bit. But back then, not many people watched Food Network. I mean, I never expected my life to be what my life is, and I still am trying to figure it out kind of on a day-to-day basis. I'm always at my happiest when I'm in the restaurants. I mean, that's where, I mean, I'm a chef. That's where I like to be. That's where I'm always the most comfortable. My goals in life always are to either be in the restaurants or be with family. When those two things are happening in harmony, I'm super happy. When I lose control of those things a little bit, I'm more on the crabby side, I guess. I hate travel. I'm really a homebody at the end of the day. Like I said, I'm most happy when I'm in the restaurants or I have family over and we're cooking in the backyard. So let's talk about the term chef. And this has been kind of a a long-running discussion on my show. And I obviously am pretty entrenched in the barbecue area. And there seems to be a lot of tossing of that term around amongst the people that are in that industry. Yeah. But if you go back and do a little due diligence, they haven't graduated from a culinary institute. They don't have a degree. And I've always been under the impression that it's kind of like me calling myself sergeant or lieutenant. I'm not in the military. I've done nothing to achieve those statuses. So to just toss them around seems a little bit disrespectful. Other people seem to have different opinions on that. You're a chef, obviously. And I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Well, I I don't think you need a degree to be a chef. Um, you know, some of the greatest chefs I know didn't go to culinary school. Thomas Keller, French Laundry, didn't go to culinary school. He's, you know, arguably greatest American chef or certainly one of them. I think the easiest way to answer the question and what I always try to say to people is when people say, I'm a chef, they're a chef, they're, you know, blah, 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 blah. I always say chef of what? If you ask yourself that question, you immediately know if that person's a chef or not. Are you chef of a TV show? Are you chef of your home kitchen? What makes you a chef? You don't have to own a restaurant to be a chef. 
minimally be overseeing one or spend a large part of your career overseeing one. One of my dear friends who's one of the greatest chefs of our time is Jacques Pepin. You know, Jacques's no longer chef of a restaurant, but he's certainly a chef. I just don't like it when, and I shouldn't even say I don't like it. Look, at the end of the day, people are going to, you know, are you a chef? No, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You know, like, I mean, people are going to call themselves what they want to call themselves. The proof is in the pudding. But I do think to be called a chef, you should have a restaurant, be overseeing a restaurant, or leading people. You know, a chef is basically, you know, the chief, the coach. In order to be the chief or the coach, you need to be overseeing people that are cooking the food or cooking the food yourself. So I think when you say, when someone says they're a chef, if you say chef of what, and that person can't answer the question, they're probably not a chef. Do you have a similar opinion on the term pit master? Because that's another one that we've talked a lot about on my show and how that actually is explained. Because it doesn't seem to be, I mean, we could argue that you there are criteria for chef to right. meet in order to get that designation, but not for pit master. There's pit masters that don't own restaurants, but that are on the circuit that are some of the greatest pit masters in the world. And if you said to them, you're pit master of what? They could tell you what they're pit master of. And look, the thing that's the most funny to me about the term chef is amongst chefs, the greatest compliment that you could give another chef is, man, that person is a spectacular cook. What a great cook. And that's how chefs talk to and about chefs. And somehow the term cook has got lost in the cycle, so to speak. If you're not a chef, it doesn't mean you're not a great cook. You could still be a great cook. And there's that's fantastic. When I'm on television, I always tell them not to refer to me as chef. Not because <clears throat> I haven't worked very hard to be considered one, but because I want to take the intimidation out for the home cook to say, you could still make this at home. I don't want you to think that, oh my God, that guy's cook, been cooking professionally for 30 years. I could never make that. My job, I always feel, for the home cook is to inspire them to cook better. The chefs on television, the real chefs on television, really never want to be referred to a chef. The ones that aren't chefs want you to call them a chef. At the end of the day, it's about food. You know, if, if you're a good cook, you're a good cook. If you're not a good cook, you're not a good cook. But as a chef who's been fortunate enough to be on television, I always want to inspire people to cook. Whatever the terminology you want to call me, I really don't care because I'm very comfortable in my own skin and I know I could cook. Let's take a look back. You're Cleveland born and bred. And I'm wondering, as you look back on your childhood, did you have a lot of barbecue experiences or were they more grilling? It was actually a little bit of both. I come from a very food-driven family. I mean, my mother is Greek and Sicilian. I mean, you want to talk about great cooks, she's about as good as it gets. When we opened Angeline in, in Atlantic City, our Sicilian restaurant, the first night it was open, I went out to my parents' table and my mom wasn't there. I'm like, Dad, where's mom? He's like, I, I don't know. I go back into the kitchen. She's four foot ten on a good day in high heels and a dress, and she's teaching the cooks how to make arancini the right way. My dad's side of the family is Eastern European, so we always smoked and grilled and cooked over live fire. My grandfather, who's 100 now, still lives on his own, good Eastern Euro blood. He would smoke hams and ribs and make bacon. And, you know, so it was always really part of my heritage growing up. And when we did Mabel's, that's why I really, for me, it was important to connect that Eastern European heritage, which really what they've been doing throughout Eastern Europe for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, we would consider barbecue in America. They're buying cuts of meat, whether they're inexpensive or expensive, they're smoking them with all the different hams and sausages. And being a Cleveland boy, I needed to connect Eastern European smoking to 
what we consider barbecue in America. And, and that's kind of where we started with Mabel's and why we thought that it really was a Cleveland-style barbecue because it was a city that was been so inspired by Eastern Europe. And when you go to the West Side Market, you smell all the smoked meats, right? When you walk in, it's the first thing that hits you in the face. Most people would never say, oh, that I'm going to get some barbecue. But really what they're doing is barbecue. So you open Lola's first and then there are other restaurants to follow. When did Mabel's get on the radar of something that you wanted to start putting together? God, very early on. You know, we opened Mabel's um, in 1997. It'll be 22 years in, or Lola, in 1997, it'll be 22 years in March. I would say 15 to 17 years ago, I started talking to Doug and Liz about, I, I really want to do a barbecue restaurant. Like, that's what I want to do. And I couldn't convince them of it. <laughs> it took me it took me like 13 years to convince them. I mean, back then, barbecue's popular, but five, six, seven years ago, that's when it really seemed to come up where even just John and Joe Public were like oh. very uh, efficient on terminology and 100%. cookers and stuff like this. Yeah, it, so. really, it really had an explosion. I mean, like Doug and Liz were probably right. If we would have done it 17 years ago, it, it may not have worked. I've been very fortunate. I started on Food Network in 1998. I was always so intrigued by barbecue, so I was one of the first hosts to really start to feature a lot of pitmasters and barbecue guys, and they let me into that family, initially with Mike Mills, who to me is as, as good as it gets in the barbecue game. For sure. A legend. Did yeah. you know that his first business was making false teeth, and he still does it today? <laughs> yes. That's like the weirdest thing ever. It is. But he's just such a special guy, and they, him and Amy just really kind of took me in and introduced me to amazing people and the, the culture. and it, Like, I knew how to barbecue 20 years ago, but as time passed and I met Mike and Amy and all the people that followed that, that's when I learned so much more about the culture and the family and the really what barbecue is on a more of a national level. Mabel's is one of three restaurants when people approach me, I'm coming into Cleveland, where's good barbecue? Because I had mentioned barbecue seems to be very popular these days. Right. Where can I get good barbecue in Cleveland? And I'm like, it's Mabel's downtown, it's Proper Pig on the west side, it's Barbecue Smokehouse in Parma, and that's it. There's a lot of crap barbecue that is existing around the greater Cleveland area. Is there a way to change that? Can you warn people? I mean, I never want to pan anybody. No, but- I never pan anybody. I, you know, I, look, I know how hard it is to make it in the restaurant business. We've been doing it for with moderate success for 22 years, and and you know, I respect anybody that has the guts to make an investment, buy the keys, open the door, and try to serve people. Different people do it with different agendas and what they want to accomplish. There was always like little tricklings of of people that did it the right way maybe in a smaller atmosphere but the larger barbecue places throughout the city you know they baked or boiled their ribs and then they put them on a gas grill and brushed them with sauce and called it barbecue and by the way we've all eaten that and it's not that that doesn't taste good i mean ribs that have been cooked in an oven for a couple hours till they're tender and brushed with a sweet acidic sauce and put on a grill and caramelized they still taste good it's just not barbecue. They still taste good. It takes time to change that culture. Like, I remember when we first opened here, I mean, there were some people that were like, the, the food tastes smoky. And I was like, wow, holy crap. You know, like... Revelation. Yeah, but it's because it's not what they had been eating for their life in Cleveland. And me trying to explain to people, barbecue's not a sauce. Barbecue is a technique. It didn't make sense to them. Like, it didn't... 
and I'm not saying every. I'm making a generalization, but a lot of people that came in, it just didn't register to them. You know, a brisket was braised, ribs were baked, sauced, and grilled. It, like so, we had these pits, and you know, we're buying local fruit woods and making sure it's aged properly and it's not too green and everything that we're cooking's over live fire and it's taking you know, depending from three to eighteen hours and. It just didn't really exist here, so to speak, or it existed, but in small pockets. There were some places, too, that were doing barbecue using pellet smokers and things like that. And I mean, and you could get results out of that. It's not like you can't get results out of that. But what I fell in love with with barbecue from when I was a child to when, you know, I started hanging out with some of these old timers is the process. You know, my favorite foods are always the one that take a lot of patience. You know, when we started our charcuterie program at Lola 20 years ago, and we were making prosciuttos and salamis, and it wasn't that we couldn't buy those things or find good things, but I loved the process of making something, hanging it, waiting 90 days and seeing if it was good. Or a prosciutto, waiting two years. Like you put something and you're like, all right, see you in two years. Let's see how this is. I could teach any human being on earth how to cook a perfect steak in a half an hour. But to put something in a pit and tend the fire and wait 12, 14, 16, 18 hours till it's done, there's a beauty in that to me with food. And it takes time. And it's not everybody understands the, the time or the process that it takes. But to me, that's the romance of barbecue and the romance of food that I enjoy the most. Mabel's opens April 2016. Not necessarily like an easy venture to, to get from a build-out standpoint and, and get open. Yeah. I remember seeing paper on the front walls Two out years. there thinking, is it going to be this week? Is it going to be this week? And it was still not now, not yeah. now. What were the hurdles that you were running into to finally get those doors open? The, uh, there were a lot, <laughs> there were a lot of them. Um, I mean, one, the permitting to get it to cooking with live fires always twice as difficult than regular. You know, we went significantly over budget. Mabel sits on a 2,400-square-foot space so as we start to build out and you know build outs of restaurants like this you know they're anywhere between three and five million dollars to build a restaurant like this so as we started building it and we realized how much it was going to cost we're like boy we got to figure out how to get more seats in this place so then you know we build mezzanines and black steel and all the stuff that goes into that and more permits and then it's like oh my god we don't have room for the pits so now we have to create a whole nother level to put the pits on that obviously they're very heavy they need to be enforced like it's just one thing after the other after the other so it you know it was a two-year build out and something that we thought we would when we bought the space we thought we could have it open in five months and two years later we finally opened so but that's the restaurant business i I think that's what a lot of people at home sometimes fail to realize that and this isn't us this is restaurants across the city or country whatever restaurant people are insane because you're opening a project that's going to cost you, I don't know, let's just, I mean, even a tiny little burger joint like B-Spot costs a million dollars. So you're going to open something that's going to cost a million to $5 million to open. And then most restaurant margins are 5%. <laughs> so I'll just let everybody at home do the math there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, we love it. So we continue to do it. And I lost all my hair by, when I was 20. So I don't have to worry about losing any more of it. But you know, it just the, the process takes a long time. I started doing a weekly radio segment with a small 
station out in Lake County, one of the first questions that the guy asked me was, you know, you get a, a big name chef come in here to, to do a barbecue restaurant. And what do you think his intentions are? Is he just a name that's on there and, and the success is because of the name? He's on television, blah, blah, blah. Is that something that you get? quite a bit, especially with the barbecue restaurant, or is it just in general? In the barbecue world, I didn't get that at all. The week that we opened, I had literally almost every great pitmaster in the United States came in here. You know, they all came, and because I had supported them for years, and they all came to support me. So in that world, never. I've never gotten any blowback from that. The Blacks, they closed their barbecue place for two days to come from Central Texas all the way to Cleveland, Ohio, to come to our opening the dad the grandpa the son the wife like they all came and black's barbecue's been there for what i think close to 100 years yeah, now for sure. you know so to see that support was unbelievable and that that family would show that support to us that mike mills came that pat martin and um i mean you name it they came we've always been really supported in the barbecue community very well I, tv's a double-edged sword it drives people to the restaurant which is great you know, but there's always going to be people that are going to be like, he can't cook. He's a TV guy. He doesn't know what he's doing, whatever. And I, I don't care. The first major award that we ever won was in 1998, Food and Wine Magazine, naming one of the top 10 young chefs in America. And Drew Nipperant, who's a famous restaurateur in, Cle- in New York, who owns Nobu and Tribeca Grill. And I mean, he's a legend. I'd never met him. And we're walking down the street. The, the awards were in Aspen and Liz and I are walking down the street and Drew goes, chef. And I look over and I'm like, oh my God, it's Drew Nipron. And like, <laughs> like I almost fainted, you know, and I was 27. He goes, come here. You, is, is this your wife? I said, this is my partner, Liz. He goes, come have lunch with me. And we sit in the Soto Cafe and we have lunch and he goes, I'm going to give you the only advice you're ever going to need for the rest of your life. And I said, what's that? And he said, Anything that is written about you, whether it is good or bad, read it, throw it out, and never think about it again. I go, what do you mean? He goes, when they say great things about you, half of it's bullshit, don't get too worked up about it. When they say bad things about you, half of it's bullshit, don't get worked up about it. You know if you're making good food. You know if you're giving good service. If the customers are coming into your restaurant, that means that you're doing it the right way. And that's all you need to know. And he's right. You can't get too caught up in this celebrity chef's opening up a barbecue restaurant. What does he know about barbecue? Like, I just go out and do the best job I can and hope that the people that come in to the restaurants appreciate it. And Mabel's here. Are you guys doing, uh, like, stages of cooks throughout the day? Because I think, you know, where some of barbecue restaurants' pains are, it's not necessarily what's coming off the pit when it's ready. Right. It's that ebb and flow of people coming in a restaurant when you decide that you are going to be a full-service place that opens for lunch, you're going to carry through dinner into the later evening hours. It's not the stuff coming off first that you're worried about. It's how can you make 9 o'clock p.m. taste as good as noon or 1? Well, I mean, you know, our pits are going 24-7. They never stop. If we run out of something, we run out, and we hope that we could catch back up. But we never let our barbecue get cold. That's something that I didn't understand as a kid who knew how to barbecue that wanted to open a barbecue restaurant until I really started hanging out with all these other guys around the country. When you're doing barbecue at your house and people come over, comes off the pit, you wrap it, you let it rest for a little bit, you cut it and you're good. But when it's a restaurant, as soon as barbecue gets cold and needs to be reheated, it's crap. It's never the same. The meat changes, everything changes. So 
we go 24-7. When we run out, we run out. We try to catch back up when we can. But the meat comes out of the smoker. We butcher paper, wrap it, hold it, in my opinion, about two hours after it comes out of the smokers when it's always at its best. And so we try to keep it at that pace where it's two hours out. You know, we hold it at 145 and, you know, we slice and serve. The book Playing With Fire was out a little earlier this year, and as we were talking about how popular barbecue and grilling has become, you see that springtime of year, and inevitably there's uh, quite a dump of books that come onto the market to talk about barbecue and grilling. Uh, This was co-written with uh, one of my buddies, Doug Tratner. Who's your guy? Um, Are you surprised that with all of the electronics and technology that we have, that books are still as successful and still craved by human beings. A lot of things have been switched out. Right. But people still want to put their hands on a book and keep it by their side yeah. as they're cooking in a kitchen or out on their deck at a pit. I mean, cookbook sales aren't what they used to be. I sure. mean, that's the, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago. Um, but they still really sell. And I, yeah, I think there's like, I'm a cookbook collector. For me, to see the book, to hold the book, to page through the book, there's something that I love about that, and I'll always love about that, and I'll never stop buying cookbooks. And I think that there's a lot of people that feel that way. Can you look up a recipe online? Absolutely. Can you find out how to do something online? Absolutely. When you get a book and you feel a book and you read it from the front to the back, I think it helps you really understand more of the story that person's trying to tell, not only about the recipe, but in food in general. So, you know, I would hope that cookbooks always survive playing with fire was my fifth book and it was the best-selling one that i've had so far and that's from 12 years ago when cookbooks did sell more so it's it's nice to see that that world is alive and well do you have to train help and staff way differently in a barbecue restaurant than you would at a lola's or uh, i mean b spot's probably a little bit different yeah we have a lot of people that go from lola to mabel's they want to understand both sides of it i I guess the the leading question is, do you get a lot of, I know a lot about barbecue guys and gals that come in here, so it's better to arm them and make sure that they're knowledgeable so when you get challenged by a bag that they're able to fire back and show that they know what they're talking about. Yeah, I I mean, the way that we do it in kind of in all of our restaurants, you know, like you get a lot of kids now that have went to culinary school or done this or done that, and you never want them to forget what they've learned, but you still want to explain to them is this is how we do it here you know and here's why here this is the process that we go through how we do it maybe you worked at a different barbecue restaurant you work somewhere else you do barbecue in your backyard i'm not saying all the things that you've learned are wrong and and you learn things along the way but we want them to understand the process on how we do barbecue and why we do barbecue so when we train people i when we train cooks at any of our restaurants, you know, from B-Spot to Mabel's to Lola, we don't just say, here's how you make it, shut up and cook. We need them to understand the process on why we go about it that way, why we think our way's the best way, and understand the technique that goes into it. I don't teach recipes. My job as a chef is to teach technique. If I teach them technique, they'll be great cooks their whole lives. We are very heavy on a technique. Like, we don't say, like, here's the recipe. Make the recipe. Because then all they know, know how to do is make a single recipe. We explain to them, here's how you season, period. Here's how you smoke, period. Here's how you man the fires. And then that's going to lead them to the final product or the recipe. We don't do it the other way. So my goal always is to make them better cooks and someday chefs. So I don't tell them to forget what they know, but I say, here's we're going to go through this process. What's your favorite thing on the menu here? 
Ah, God, it's hard. Uh, favorite thing? I love the. I do love the pigtails. My favorite thing on the menu here. I go back and forth. Even though I think the one of the easier things to smoke and that we do are ribs. Um, you My know, favorite, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I sure. think I think our ribs with the pickle glaze are incredibly unique and yep. special. I tend to always go back to those, but I'm super proud of our brisket. I love our beef rib. You know, I love the pastrami spices that weave through the beef rib because I think it has a very great Eastern Euro feel to it. But, you know, I would say that the pork ribs are, although they're one of the easier things that we do, to me, they're just really special. Do you switch out pulled pork for pork belly or did you not even consider pulled pork? No, we, we do. Here we do only belly. In Vegas, we're going to do belly and pulled pork. Here we have a great source for belly. You know, it's the same belly that we use it at Lola. I think one of the things I'm so proud of that we do at Mabel's is even with all the great pitmasters in the country, you know, the one thing that I understood as a chef, maybe even more so than a lot of the pitmasters that, you know, I've gotten to talk to them about all this over the years too, is we have become masterful of sourcing product. You know, so to take what I know about working the pits and smoking food and connecting that with our ability to source humanely properly raised beef and pork and turkey and chicken or whatever it is and and the side dishes where, you know, the vegetables are organic and they're not just an afterthought. I think that's one of the things that really makes Mabel so special. Although I don't know it as fact, I would argue that we're probably, from a raw product standpoint, I would say that there's very few barbecue restaurants in America, restaurants in America that source as hard as we do. Do you have any inkling or any forethought at all about getting into the Barbecue Hall of Fame at some point? No, I don't think about that kind of stuff. Do you know Guy Fieri's in the Barbecue Hall of Fame? I did not, no. I don't think about that kind of stuff. I really. Do you know why he's in the Barbecue Hall of Fame? No, okay. no. Me neither. No. <laughs> I have no idea. But, I mean, you have a barbecue restaurant, so I yeah. figure from a celebrity standpoint that at least right. puts you I, in the same. You, you know what, though? It's like, look, I'm ecstatic of all the awards that the restaurants have won. I've been lucky enough to win, whatever. But I just never think about it. I never thought, like, oh, I want to win a Food and Wine Award. I never want to win a James Beard Award. I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to, you know, like USA Today just said our pork ribs are some of the best in the United States. Like, all those things are great, and they're great for the restaurants, and I like them because they energize the staff and, and reinforce to the staff that we are doing things the right way, and I think that's fantastic, but I never think about them. I don't care if I win an award. You want to do a lightning round? Sure. All right, here that's we go. Exciting. We'll, All right. we'll, we'll ramp up with this. We'll, we'll, we'll. <laughs> Flay or brown? Uh, Flay. Lump or briquette? Oh, lump. Reverse sear or normal sear? Oh, God, normal sear. Yes or no? Searing seals in the juices? Technically, no. Technically? Technically, no. It does not. I know. <laughs> uh, let it rest or let's eat? Let it rest. Pellet or offset? Offset all day. Spatchcock or beer can chicken? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm going to go beer can. Really? Yeah, I love a beer can chicken. I just love a beer but it's, can. But it's kind of unsafe, right? I, I've never, it's you never hurt me. Of, <laughs> you are sitting right next to me. I can't, I can't argue that. I mean, I don't want to sit on a beer can, but it makes it makes the chicken very moist and delicious. Sweet or savory? Savory. Michael, we really appreciate the time, man. Thanks for doing this. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. You got it. Boom. There you go. The Michael Simon interview that everybody had been waiting for. Hopefully, it met your expectation. Went beyond mine. Got to admit, I was a little starstruck sitting across the table from the Iron Chef himself. But he made the conversation very easy. He was very engaging. 
seemed to be pretty involved in the conversation that he was enjoying it at least which is good for me would always hate to waste somebody's time especially a guy that busy so hopefully it's the first of perhaps a few or perhaps many Michael, if you ever need to come on the show or you just want to talk about browns or barbecue or grilling in general or just food, hit me up. You know where to find me. Also, if you've never listened to the show live, check me out tonight. It's a live show tonight. 9 to 11, thebbqcentralshow.com, the place to go for all your listening options. So I hope to see you then. If not, catch me on the pod. You know you're going to love it. And now I will be efforting more big names like... Ina Garten, Bobby Flay, Guy Fietti, coming for you. Michael Simon did it. Everybody can do it. Start the tweets. Let's go. Thanks for joining me for the bonus content. We'll catch you again soon.